you know, I was doing it before they were calling it embedding. I mean, 1992, I I flew into Somalia with the first army battalion into Somalia. In 94, I air assaulted into the Port-au-Prince uh, seaport uh, from the USS Eisenhower, and uh, you know, was with the first group of vehicles over the the pontoon bridge into Bosnia uh, with the 1st Armoured Division. The balance between sort of security and, and you know, the, the right of the, of the American people to know, uh, to know what their government is doing uh, uh, is it's a, it's a hard one to strike when you're writing about uh, national security matters and intelligence, uh, you know, special operations. Hi, and welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and for this episode, I had the opportunity to speak to Sean Naylor. Sean is a journalist and author of Not a Good Day to Die, an account of the 2002 Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan. More recently, he wrote Relentless Strike, a history of the secretive Joint Special Operations Command. He has also spent nearly 30 years reporting from combat zones. In our conversation, he talks about everything from the role of journalists reporting from war zones to the unique challenges of writing about security, intelligence, and secretive military organizations, including addressing the sometimes tricky relationships with units and people he writes about. It's a great discussion with a really remarkable guest. Before we get to it, though, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're enjoying the MWI podcast, we would really appreciate if you could take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us to get the word out to new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Sean Naylor. Sean, thanks very much for, for sitting down and, and uh, speaking with me today. Um, you are the author of a few books, um, I think most notably, most recently, uh, Relentless Strike, um, sort of the story of the Joint Special Operations Command, and before that, uh, uh, Not a Good Day to Die, about Operation Anaconda. Um, can you talk a little bit about why those topics? What what struck you when you looked at Operation Anaconda and, and when you looked at JSOC and said, hey, there's a story to be told here? So for uh, Not a Good Day to Die, which uh, was published in March of 2005, um, a, but a, about a battle that occurred in March of 2002 in Afghanistan, and, and I was fortunate enough to be uh, an embedded reporter reporting for Army Times um, on the ground in, in that battle. Um, I had been uh, on the hunt for a, a battle to write about, to write a, a sort of a deeply reported narrative history of a battle uh, for some time. Um, really, ever, ever, ever since I'd read We Were Soldiers Once and Young, by uh, about the, the Battle of uh, the Idrang Valley uh, by, by, by Joe Galloway. 
and 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 Lieutenant General Hal Moore. Uh, and I read that book, and, and I, I remember I, I read it, I, I think it was uh, 1997, and I thought, wow, that, uh, these guys in Vietnam were, were so lucky to have these, uh, you know, these dramatic episodes to write about on such a, you know, a, a regular basis. Um, I don't mean that anybody else was lucky about that, but just from a point of view of if, if you wanted to write dramatic narrative nonfiction, uh, you know, the Vietnam War uh, offered you a sort of a plethora of opportunities to do that. Um, and I thought to myself, what could I do now in 1997 that, that, that what opportunities do I have? And, the, and the, they were few and far between. Now, at the time, I thought, well, nobody's done a book on the Battle of Mogadishu, and I know there's a whole lot more there to be uh, to be reported on, but I didn't sort of move out fast enough on that. And uh, uh, Mark Bowden obviously <laughs> wrote wrote uh, the book Black Hawk Down, which just you know uh, made me more determined to not sit on my hands any any longer. So once I was in Operation Anaconda, I uh, I realized that I I needed to uh, to write that. To write that book, and and so I started reporting on it as a, as an author. Even while I was still in Afghanistan, I spent January to May in Afghanistan that of two thousand and two. The battle was early March of two thousand and two. So uh, you know, I spent most of sort of April and early May uh, just chasing down people who'd been in the in the battle and and interviewing them at sort of a, at, uh, at at Bagram Air Base. And then and the book was published in 2005, Yes, a few years later. Um, and then your next book, Relentless Strike, was in what year? That, that came out in uh, September of 2015. Okay. So when did you start looking at that and say, that's, I think that's my next book? I, I had been aware um, really since, uh, since reporting Not a Good Day to Die that Joint Special Operations Command had a uh, had not just a major role, but probably the the preeminent role, the uh, the supported effort, if you like, in in military terms, in uh, what we were calling at the time the global war on terror, or the various campaigns that that made up that that uh, uh, that global effort, and and I realised that that nobody was really writing about JSOC, as, as Joint Special Operations Command is, is called. Nobody was really writing about them much at all, and certainly not as this organization that actually had a key role in so many of the most important or high-profile events uh, of the war to you know, include um, the, the the hunt for and, and capture of Saddam Hussein, uh, the uh, the killing of Uday and Kuzai Hussein, his sons, um, the, uh, uh, the the hunt for the various uh, senior uh, leaders, uh, you know, of the of Al Qaeda and the Taliban, the uh, the the Pat Tillman. Uh, friendly fire death, 
um, and and the 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 campaign in particular against Al Qaeda in Iraq and uh, Abu Musab al Zarqawi and. Um, and I just felt like somebody needs to write this book. This is the, this is the big untold story of, uh, you know, of the post 9-11 era. And, in, you know, and this organization actually has a very interesting sort of history uh, since its formation in 1980 uh, through the, the 80s and 90s as well. Uh, you know, hunting for uh, Manuel Noriega in, in, uh, in Panama. Um, you know, uh, helping the hunt for Pablo Escobar in in uh, in Colombia. Uh, they were obviously the the organization at, at the center of the Battle of Mogadishu in in uh, in, in Somalia. Uh, they were the organization at the center of the hunt for uh, Balkan war criminals. And I felt like you know nobody's really put the pieces together and written about this organization. And I felt like it was also my you know sort of a, the, my duty, if you like, as an American uh, reporter, to tell the American people you know who was waging their wars uh, with with you know billions of their dollars um, and many thousands of their of their sons and daughters. I think there's um, there's a lot of overlap uh, between those two books. Certainly in terms of readership, I think that mm -hmm. they're going to appeal to the same people. I, I, I you know I personally know a number of people who have both books on their shelves. Um, but it strikes me that uh, one is very much contemporary, based on your own observations in in large part or at least in part. Uh, another kind of building backwards and telling the story from its history. In terms of process, you know the books. Like I said, on their face, they belong in the same section of the bookshelves, but I imagine the process is very different. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't completely different. I had two slightly different audiences in mind in that when I wrote Not a Good Day to Die, the, the, uh, the bullseye, if you like, of my, of my target audience would have been uh, professional military people. I wanted the book to be something that uh, uh, an officer going through the Army's Command and General Staff uh, College or uh, Army War College or any sort of similar military uh, institution with the, with the other services would, would, he would or she would get something of, of value from it. And I, I think, I, I mean, I think I achieved that based on my, uh, you know, Book signing sessions at those two uh, at those two institutions, um, but but I of course I also wanted it to appeal to a a broader audience. But my sense was if I can get traction and credibility with the professional military audience, then then that will build word of mouth for the for the rest of the uh, uh, for the rest of the uh, of, of the potential audience for the book. The process, well, as I said, I, I was aided in that book because it was, it's a fairly focused look at, at one operation, both how that operation got planned, the, the sort of the strategic context in which it was planned, um, and then what went wrong in the operation, what happened during the operation. Um, and I felt like I needed to make it as detailed as possible in the first half of the book, which is basically the preparations, so that as things start happening quickly, 
in the second half of the book, there's the battle itself. Um, the reader understands Im immediately why that's, why that's happening. And I also felt that, um, you know, it, it was fairly contemporaneous. I, I wanted, and I, and I knew it would be uh, to a degree um, controversial, I wanted to have as much of the background explained and detailed as to how I knew this so that uh, the number of people who, you know, to, to basically uh, make it almost impossible for somebody to say, oh, it didn't happen that way. Um, the process was obviously uh, being in, in the later stages of the planning and rehearsal and, and then in the operation itself, so that gave me a lot of first-hand information. Um, and then I interviewed, you know, every, virtually every single person that I could who was connected to that. Um, I was lucky that uh, at first U.S. Central Command and U.S. Special Operations Command had apparently sort of cut a sort of an informal deal to not, to not talk about it. And uh, I had to wait out uh, until one or two of the senior leaders in those organizations um, uh, changed jobs and the new teams came in that were not as, uh, did not feel bound to those, to those deals. Um, and, you know, one or two other senior, senior folks um, opened some doors for me uh, that, you know, especially into the special operations world and I was I was very fortunate uh, there but the process I also used surprisingly more than I did in the in relentless strike I used the Freedom of Information Act process um, uh, which which gave me some some of the planning documents and some of the special operations uh, documents um, but uh, uh, but in both books, I mean, there, there's a sort of a there's a there's a a two phase uh, sort of level of understanding of the challenge, I, I suppose, that I've discovered. One is you think, ah, oh, how am I ever going to get all the information I need for this book? You know, once I get that information, this book is going to write itself. But I, I, it's going to be really hard to get the information. You spend a, you know, however long a year or, or so year or two just digging for the information and you finally have you know at least enough to start writing and then you think oh my god I've got so much information how on earth am I going to be able to write this book and of course the writing is always far harder than you think it's going to be at the at the time um, I, I'm fortunate to uh, to have had uh, two very uh, understanding uh, book editors uh, publishers um, uh, you know who allowed me to bust through multiple deadlines in uh, uh, in each book, um, so that's I mean that was the, the process for not a good day to die for relentless strike. Um, you know that was a that was based much more on a you know a simple combination of interviews and open source information that was already out there and uh, you know it's sort of like a jigsaw uh, and you you're assembling the jigsaw piece by piece um, and it's it's very laborious 
Uh, it's you know I mean that doesn't mean it's not fun you know interviewing interesting people who've done interesting things. Um, uh, and, but you know that was as hard as not a good day to die was you know relentless strike was several times harder uh, in in the end to do because uh, you've got so much ground to cover really you know. Uh, uh, 30 plus years of, of history and uh, you know you could you, you have to avoid the the trap of of getting so sucked in down the rabbit hole of one particular operation you know and that that you lose track of time and and realize that you've you've just spent you know three weeks trying to you know trying to find out information that, that might add up to two paragraphs in the in the book, um, so that I mean that was uh, that that was a you know a tough uh, you know that was a very tough challenge and, and of course the you know it was you're writing about a very secretive organization so um, you know getting people to talk was was certainly more challenging. You mentioned I, I want to kind of. Uh, Flesh that out a little bit. You, you mentioned it's difficult to get some people to talk when you're writing a book about, um, you know, a fairly secretive military organization. You mentioned that when you were working on Not a Good Day to Die, that there were some informal agreements that kind mm -hmm. of made it more difficult to. Um, it strikes me that you're trying to do a job to tell a story. Um, other people might see their job as trying to keep things secret. Mm -hmm. um, What's the right balance, and what are the right mechanisms to achieve that balance? I'm not, I don't know whether whether there's a mechanism that's possible. I mean, we have the First Amendment in the United States, which you know we should be grateful for every day. Um, so you know, reporters can report what they want. Writers, authors. Um, the balance between Sort of security and and you know the the right of the of the American people to know uh, to know what their government is doing uh, uh, is is a it's a hard one to strike when you're writing about uh, national security matters and intelligence uh, you know special operations and I don't claim to have all the answers. Um, the rough rule that I used uh, and that I've that I've used for years, not just in, in 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 writing these books, is that if if I'm talking to a you know a career person in the field about which I'm writing intelligence, special operations, or whatever, and and that person you know tells me either explicitly or implicitly. By by being interviewed on a certain topic, that that it's okay to write about that topic or to name that person or whatever, then that then I I tend to trust that person equally. If if the person says, "Hey, I'm I'm going to tell you this person's name, but please don't put it in the book," then I take that seriously too, and I and I pretty sure I abided by that uh, just about every every time. Um, I. Uh, you know, I also took it upon myself to keep some names out of the book that, that 
that I hadn't been asked to keep out. Um, CIA station chiefs, uh, as an example, and 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 others. Um, but there's, you know, there's plenty of evidence. I'm not going to kid you to, uh, that 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 everybody agrees with the decisions that I made. Um, uh, General Tony Thomas, the head of U.S. Special Operations Command, the former head of of Joint Special Operations Command, has been quite outspoken in his. Uh, you know, displeasure at, at, at the book and, and the contents um, on on sort of security grounds, um, and and so of one or two others. So, uh, you know, uh, I, I I made the calls as best I could. I I had given I had given U.S. SOCOM and 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 Joint Special Operations Command the opportunity to have input into the book right right from the start um, and and they decided not to avail themselves of that opportunity which you know I think cost them the opportunity to sort of negotiate really with me on on, on things like that were you surprised by um, the amount or the degree of pushback you got or criticism that you got, either in how how, how great it was or how little it was. Um, no, I, I I wasn't really. I mean, you never know exactly which raw nerves are going to be struck. the The thing that surprised me was the the uh, the level of apparent concern or expressed concern about the use of true names in the book. Uh, I had, because most, honestly, most of the people I was writing about were either a fairly high rank by the time that the book came out or had, uh, or had left the military. Um, The you know, I had expected there to be more of a big deal made about some of the operational stuff that I wrote about. You know, secret missions in Syria uh, during the Iraq War, um, the uh, the use of uh, basically IEDs made by Delta Force to kill. Uh, Shia militant leaders and 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 so forth. Um, that those were the those were the sorts of things that I I thought would uh, would create more of a sort of oh you shouldn't be writing about that reaction really. And maybe there was, you know, and I just haven't seen that. But that's not that that's not what came to me. But I wasn't surprised that that a section, a subsection of the special operations community would be upset because they've been raised in an environment in which they've been told, you know, as, as I say, it's it's sort of like the fight club rules. You know, the first rule of JSOC is you don't talk about JSOC and the second rule of JSOC is you don't talk about JSOC. So when you're, I want to go back to uh, Not a Good Day to Die. Uh, because you, you wrote that based in part on several months that you had spent mm-hmm. uh, in Afghanistan when, with the, mm-hmm. um, did you 
what was your experience, I guess, in that? Did you did you find units that you were um, closely working with or embedded with to be receptive, or did it did it really depend? I, I mean, I, so I'm a huge believer in the embedded reporter construct. Um, you know, I was doing it before they were calling it embedding. I mean, 1992, I I flew into Somalia with the 1st Army Battalion into Somalia. In 94, I air-assaulted into the Port-au-Prince uh, seaport uh, from the USS Eisenhower and, uh, you know, was with the first group of vehicles over the the pontoon bridge into Bosnia uh, with the 1st Armored Division. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've, I, I cut my teeth journalistically at Army Times uh, doing, doing that sort of reporting. And I, I, you know, I think if you're covering the military, it's, it's, and you're covering the military in a combat operation or real world operation, it's it's an essential way to report. It's not the only way to report, and you won't get every piece of information that that you might want from doing it. But I think it's it's essential to be able to understand how the military, you know, or a particular military organization or unit is, uh, you know, is perceiving things. If you can sit in the operations center and know what the battalion commander or the brigade commander or the squadron commander knows at that point in time and see what the information is that's available to him when he makes his decision or her decision, um, that's enormously useful to, to a reporter and enables you to give much more context to uh, your reporting on an episode than if you're uh, observing it from the outside. Now, there's context that you don't get from from the uh, you know from from the embedded, but you don't have nearly as much opportunity to interact with locals. Um, you certainly don't uh, really get to see the you know whoever the enemies uh, is. You don't get get to see it from their point of view. But I again, I'm a big believer in it. My experience in uh, uh, in in Anaconda was was terrific um, with the the Rakasans, the third brigade of the uh, uh, of of the 101st uh, Airborne Division Air Assault. Um, I I I I couldn't have asked, frankly, for 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 better access. And you know, I was able to to air assault into the to the Shahikot Valley where where Operation Anaconda was fought with with those troops and. You know, was under fire with them and, and saw it from their point of view, and, and I, you know, the, I, I uh, uh, you know, I was very fortunate uh, in the, in the way that they they, they took me in and, and, and trusted me, and uh, you know, I judging from the reception that I got from them from the book, I think they they, they felt that that was worthwhile. It sounds like you you had a very positive experience. Uh, embedded with them. We recently had uh, Sebastian Younger here, who of course had a very positive experience as well and, and um, has written widely about his experiences as an embedded reporter also in Afghanistan. Is there, you know, as these wars have gone on, you know, year after year with this many reporters, it strikes me that 
a mistake by one reporter could sort of leave the bad, a bad taste in the mouth of particular officers. Uh, and how how important is that? How how much was that on your mind that hey, I have a responsibility to try to like maintain my side of the relationship so that this this system still works? Um. I have to admit, I don't often think about it that way because I'm just trying. I mean, as if if you if if you do something that's unethical, you know, or or just plain in you know incompetent, uh, you, you're sort of screwing yourself anyway. Let alone all the reporters that are coming after you. So, I mean. I don't. I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't have to worry. It's not the worry about you know, representing the wider body of reporters. I mean, I'm trying to be an ethical, you know, skilled reporter. Anyway, uh, it's in my best interest, and it's the right thing to do. Um, I've been in. I've 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 embedded with units that have had. What, you know what they perceive to be as neg- negative experiences with reporters, and you know it, it it does create a challenge. But honestly, I you know I think you've got to also give enough credit to the you know American service man or woman to realize that not every reporter is the same, just as not every soldier is the same person, and uh, you know and and to hope that they will uh, you know. Uh, Take you as 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 an individual, treat you as an individual, and if you're embedded for enough time, they'll they'll get to have a sense of you anyway and who you are. Um, and you know, I suppose the longer I did this, because I I I'd been working for Army Times since 1990, so I already had more than 11 years of experience covering the military when 9/11 happened, and uh, you know I I. You know, and I obviously gained more in the years after that. So by the time I was showing up at, at a unit in 2005, 2006, 2007, I, I wasn't at least to the, uh, you know, to, to, to the folks of any rank in that unit are, are really an unknown quantity, at least from the point of view of my, my body of work. Uh, so you've mentioned a couple of times that you've um, written for a number of years for Army Times. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't take the keenest of listeners to detect an accent. I, I need to I need to figure out how to change uh, the Wikipedia page that somebody created for me. Somebody, not me, um, uh, because it says I'm Canadian. I mean, I'm I I was born in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, because, but both my parents were British, and we moved back to uh, to the UK to England when I was just a baby. Um, and I grew up in England for the first half of my childhood and in Ireland for the second half of my childhood. And then I came to the United States on a college scholarship when I was 17. Um, and I stayed and I, I uh, you know, so now I, and I've lived in, I, I, I did an undergraduate and a graduate degree at Boston University. And then I came down to, to Washington uh, to work for Army Times. and. You know, I've been in Washington ever since. So now I'm an American from Washington D.C. So um, what is what is that um, raised in the U.K.? Uh, you come to the U.S. as as many students from all over the world do. Um, did you plan to stay, and did you know that this is what you wanted to do? Um, I 
I didn't know when I first arrived whether I would stay. Uh, you know, um, or before I arrived might be a better a better way of saying that. Um, I, it was just an adventure to me. I was, it, it came out of left field. I got the scholarship, and I'm like, wow, I'm going to go to America. That's great. Um, I quickly fell in love with the United States and decided that you know I I, I wanted to stay. Um, I had been doing rock and roll reporting in Ireland. Uh, I, I worked for an uh, Irish magazine, still exists, called Hot Press Magazine, as a sort of a freelance writer specialising in in hard rock. I was their hard rock reporter. So, uh, so this was when I was sort of 16, 17, uh, 18 years old. I kept doing it while I was in college for a few years. Um, but I, I realised pretty quickly that if I was going to make journalism my career, and I was a journalism student at Boston University, that I, I, I wanted to write about things that were somehow more sort of consequential uh, than, than, than music. Um, not that music isn't consequential, but you're, you're, sort of, you're a little bit on the outside looking in as a rock and roll writer. Um, and so uh, I'd always had an interest in, in the military, um, and there were several professors at Boston University who, um, uh, you know, encouraged uh, that interest and, and who taught about sort of national security journalism and, uh, and defense journalism. That sort of really whetted my appetite. And then in the summer of the, the summer between my junior and senior years in college, which was the summer of 1987, I, I um, went out to uh, uh, the city of Peshawar in Pakistan, in Pakistan's northwest frontier province, and uh, covered the Afghan-Soviet war and the Mujahideen, uh, went into Afghanistan for a couple of days uh, with the Mujahideen, and uh, you know, I, I got a real love for writing about sort of warfare and, and, and sort of military stuff there. So I, once I came back, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Fascinating. Um, last question, I guess, and then and then we'll kind of wrap up. Um, you've, these last couple of books have been quite well known. Um, is is there another one in the works? Do you have anything planned? There isn't. There isn't another one actively being worked on. I mean, I have ideas, but um, it's a uh, it's a it's it's a complicated uh, decision making process. You know, I mean, think of it as a as a Venn diagram, and there's sort of like four circles in my Venn diagram, um, and they all have to intersect uh, to uh, to make uh, to make me decide to write a book. One circle uh, says that it has to be a topic that will hold my interest for a couple of years, because for for a couple of years that is all that I'm going to be doing. You know, up to sort of. 12, 8, 14, 18 hours a day, every day, six, seven days a week as, as the deadlines close in. Um, and so it has, to, I, it has to be something that I'm really passionately interested in. Secondly, it has to be a topic that uh, is, has been largely untold. I'm, I am not particularly interested in, in Writing stories that are or rewriting stories that are already fairly well known. Um, I'm 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 not interested 
in really adding the, the, the missing 5 or 10% of information to a story that, that 90 to 95% uh, is, is already known about. I'm, I'm, I want to reverse those ratios. I'm interested in, in taking something that the reader only knows the tip of the iceberg of, if that, and, and showing the reader the, the, the rest of the iceberg. Um, third, it has to be a, uh, it has to be a topic that's potentially interesting enough to other people, to enough other people, uh, that a publisher will pay me enough money to make it worth my while to devote myself full-time to writing the book for, for a couple of years. Um, and then fourth, and this is the hardest one, frankly, uh, given the, the, the previous three, it has to be a topic that I am confident that I can get the information on, that I can nail. Um, so the intersection between those four circles is very, very small. And so that's, uh, uh, you know, I've certainly got ideas. You know, I'm not really ready to, to talk about them, but they, but they may, I may decide not to do them. I might hear somebody might uh, come up to me tomorrow with a, with a, a story that, that sounds fantastic. I mean, it, honestly, there's, there's some big, topics out there that that demand to be covered but I, I would love to write a, a you know a really dramatic book about what they, you know a, a singleton mission if you like a, you know a, a, which is in the special ops terminology a one-person mission or a, you know or, or a, 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 a sort of a small unit action that no one's ever uh, written about before that's incredibly dramatic and you know maybe somebody could make into a movie or something someday I mean uh, having just you know a couple of years ago published a, a, a 30 year history of a secretive organization composed of other secretive organizations you know I'm, I'd be quite happy to think like hey I, I only need to interview five people for this book and you know that's it um, so we'll see but I haven't I mean that's a long answer to a, a simple question I haven't I haven't got anything uh, that I'm actively working on at the moment uh, as a book project. Well, I and I think uh, a good number of the listeners of this podcast too look forward to it whenever it does come out and whatever, whatever it is you choose to write on. Sean, thanks very much. Hey, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you're not already following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We want to connect with other people with an interest in the topics we cover, and it's a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.